Hello, welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. In this collection of episodes called Commodifying Human Nature, I interviewed Jennifer Lau. She's the founder and president of the Centre for Bioethics and Culture and producer of documentary films Exploitation, which won Best Documentary in the California Independent Film Festival, Anonymous Father's Day, Breeders, a subclass of women, and Maggie's story. In 2018, she released Hashtag Big Fertility, which is an official selection in the Silicon Valley International Film Festival. She also runs a campaign group, Stop Surrogacy Now, which can be found at www.stopsurrogacynow. As always, please like, share and subscribe. So, um, I'm so glad to talk to you because I've been rather obsessed since thinking about the UK having commercial surrogacy uh, and the, the gay men, they can't be the first couple to ever have uh, surrogacy on the NHS, but this gay couple um, have just been in the news and it's all the themes that you'd expect, which is celebration and how wonderful it is that these people are going to be parents. But you very much see the other side of that, Jennifer, and you've been campaigning for some time. Can I just ask to start with, how did you get into this and what is it? what is this that you now do? Yeah, yeah. My, my first sort of like dipping my toe into assisted reproduction came around the the topic of egg donation. At the time, I had two of my daughters were at the university, University of California, Berkeley. They'd come home with these ads in their campus newspaper that they could sell their eggs and make a hundred thousand um, dollars helping people have babies. And I became outraged and I started researching, you know, my background is in nursing. So I was really concerned with the health risks of these young women. They're taking these really powerful fertility drugs. They're not patients. They're not infertile. They're not doing it for any reason other than they need the cash. Um, and I produced a film called Exploitation, which just took off. I mean, we won major film awards, a documentary film. I've never made a movie in my life. Um, and that sort of just sort of sucked me into this whole vortex of what is going on with assisted production, especially in the space of what we call third party conception. So that's using other women's eggs, sperm from sperm donors, and of course, you know, surrogate motherhood and the renting of wombs. And I think I've now produced five or six films and I'm actually in production right now on a new documentary on surrogacy. And I look at it as a, I, as a feminist. As a, as a woman, as a nurse, as somebody who's just really concerned with um, children, you know, being created in these commercial contracts, it's just appalling. Keeps me up at night. Gosh, I bet it does. So, um, <laughs> just to be shocked, $100,000 they can make from, from their, uh, which is what, the whole of your college debt that you can make from selling all of your eggs? Yeah, and actually in reality, a lot of times they don't really get paid that. It's sort of, we call it in the U.S. a bait and switch. So if they put in this ad for $100,000, get 500 women who will apply. So they want to build their catalog. So, you know, when couples go, they can look through catalogs and say, oh, I want a blonde girl who speaks French and plays the violin, or I want a girl who plays tennis. And so they really recruit these girls. And so one particular woman I, I interviewed, she saw an ad when she was a student at Stanford University and it was offering her $50,000. But she was then selected, but the agency said, oh, well, you weren't selected by the people that were willing to pay you $50,000. Ah. However, however, we have this gentleman who wants to buy your eggs and he will pay you $15,000. Well, still $15,000 to a young girl with major school debt. That's a lot of money. Um, and I'm guessing because it's, I've had children, right? So I know what my eggs can do, if you like. Um, and I think the whole egg thing, it's almost like, it's sold as if it's not really going to be your genetic material that ends up sort of being the mother because the surrogate is not the mother either um, in, uh, in the States. Like there's weird language that happens. I, I'm sure it happens over here as well. You can tell me. But so 
essentially, if that egg grew inside of you, there would be no further genetic material to make it, aside from the sperm, to make it yours. Is that right? Yeah, and what? you know, I think they, they intentionally, actually in surrogacy, they intentionally make sure that the surrogate is not pregnant using her own eggs because they want to make sure that neither one of these women would ever have a right to claim motherhood, um, you know, to be listed on a birth certificate or to have any rights for the child. So it's intentionally sort of, you know, exploiting two women for the gain of the, the buyers. I call them egg poachers. I call them baby buyers, baby sellers, um, because, you know, it is what it is. And these people are literally, literally poaching eggs and buying and selling children with no regard for the children or the women. See, we thought about sperm donation and we thought about what I have, um, and I'm using the royal we. Um, so I've, I've thought about sperm donation, like before I thought really clearly about surrogacy. So say 15 years ago, and I'd think that it wasn't very nice that a kid would grow up not knowing who their dad was. But now there must be thousands of children across the world that were carried by women that weren't their mothers that then are called mummy women that aren't their mothers that probably have very little chance to ever trace the person who's genetically their mother um how does how on earth is that going to pan out for everyone concerned really yeah, I mean, I honestly say oftentimes that this is one of the largest human social experiments of our time, um, and often without the consent of people that are being subjects of this human experimentation. But we are seeing all around the world that now, because donor conception with egg and sperm has been around much longer than surrogacy. So mostly the people born of surrogacy are still little children. Or, yeah. or just entering their teen years. Whereas, you know, especially sperm donation, that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And through 23andMe and Ancestry.com, and we have this, you know, obsession with finding out who we're genetically related to with big data now. There's all these databases. So the donor conceived people, the ones who haven't been lied to and actually know how they were you know, created, um, are finding half-siblings, they're finding biological uh, parents, or finding grandparents. Um, you know, I, I work very closely with a woman whose daughter sold her eggs three times, and then her daughter went on to develop cancer and, and is no longer living. Now, she is the grandmother of those children. She's found them all um, through DNA testing, um, and she actually has a relationship with some of her grandchildren, which is sort of bittersweet. I mean, she lost her daughter, but she also was able to develop some kind of relationship. So it's just, it's just such a mess. And I just think sometimes in about a decade, we're going to need a lot of psychologists, counselors for people that are going to need to be in therapy and probably a lot of lawyers. Cause I imagine there's going to be a lot of lawsuits that are going to come after like class action lawsuits for denying me the right to my identity. I mean, these young donor conceived people, they want an accurate birth certificate. They don't want, you know, Anderson Cooper's my father and that's it. They want to know who's the egg donor and who's the womb that I grew in. Yeah, it's, um, I think that's the interesting thing, isn't it? So we could think that a, a woman who had used her own eggs, who actually was the mother, but then it gets so and it tangled and... I don't even know if I can wrap my head around the fact that that egg is the child's mother, uh, comes from the child's mother. And actually the child's, that child, when they have their next baby, isn't it sort of like as soon as you're conceived, you have the, almost have the eggs of your grandmother or there's some sort of legacy of, of those sort of genes. We're, we're just such genetically strong bonded mammals it's yeah. peculiar yeah i mean one of the women that i interviewed in one of my films she's a um a family th uh, therapist and she tells this great story about you know a whole hill full of sheep and you put the little baby out there and there could be 500 sheep and that baby will just know exactly which one is its mother it won't just go up to a random female you know sheep and start nursing off of that and they will go to their mother so we we are and you know a lot of the donor can see people talk about it really hits them when they have their first child and they see like 
they see somebody that has toes like them and they know, oh, that's from, because nobody else in this family I was raised with have those toes. That's from my genetic mother or, or they'll, you know, they'll find, they'll finally find that mother and go, ah. you know, like the, we have a childhood book. Are you my mother? And you, when you walk around, are you my mother? And when you find them, you just know, uh, you know, as a pediatric nurse, I always say, you know, when a newborn baby is born, there's one thing you don't have to teach them. They know their mother. They, yeah. they come out looking, rooting for that breast so they can nurse from that mother. Um, they know they her do. voice, her smell. Well, uh, I was reading about this. There was a massive um, bit of research done where actually from the third trimester, from the beginning of the third trimester, the baby, through their bones and through the amniotic fluid, learned to recognize their mother. You know, I, I know that when I had my first baby, I didn't have to do, I, I had cesareans with mine and he just, he just moved, you know, he just <laughs> moved until he found what he was looking, and like, like properly moved until he found what he was looking for. And I always think babies know better how to be babies than, than mothers know how to mother. They sort of teach you, don't they? They're much smarter than we give them credit. And when I, you know, I joke because I live in California and we have very strict, like, animal cruelty laws and, and animal inhumanity and we we have a new we have a dog and when our dog was born we had to wait by law eight weeks to remove our puppy from its mother because it was seen as inhumane and cruel to remove a newborn but we take human babies you know wet out of a woman's womb and hand them into strangers arms and think that there's no trauma so what was the start of this? Is IVF like the, the thin end of the wedge? Was it when we started messing with fertility that we ended everything else? Um, you know, I, I, I often wonder like what, what happened to sort of trigger it. And part of it was, it, it was a whole new, you know, when I read some of the early books written by some like iconic feminist, Gina Correa's book, The Mother Machine, there was so much human experimentation going on on women um, in fertility without even their knowledge most of the time, without even their consent that they were being used and experimented on. So there was this whole sort of corruption, if you will. Um, you know, it started in the United Kingdom with the birth of Louise Brown. You know, the first test tube baby was, you know, came out of, out of England. Um, but it was in this, uh, this attempt to help women who were struggling with fertility. Um, and then it just became quite lucrative. I mean, it's big, big business. I mean, the fertility doctors on university campuses in America make higher than the presidents of the universities or the provost. I mean, these, these physicians are making, you know, half a million dollars a year running fertility medical clinic. You know, Columbia University, an Ivy League school in New York, their fertility business funds the whole entire OBGYN department at Columbia University. So it's this big business. And we stopped looking at um, how to treat infertility, how to figure out why men and women are struggling with fertility and looking at it as more of a kind of a curative when we found this technical technological workaround. And, you know, I'm in the backyard of the Silicon Valley now and all the big high tech companies offer, you know, a benefit to women is to be paid to freeze and bank their eggs so they could keep working, you know, grinding out their career, but have their eggs on ice for when they're 40 or 50 and they decide to have their children, you know, yeah. so now it's become this, this love of technology to conquer and solve all of our problems. Which basically, I mean, I've, since I've been in this whole thing, so five years now, I've been worried about language in particular. And, and I think in nowhere better than infertility where the word mother is, is just seemingly erased and often even woman. So when gay men talk about the, the surrogate, or the donor, um, you know, that, and, or you see this really wonderful story of someone going picking up the babies. They don't even say, how's the woman, how's the woman that just carried those babies who's just had major abdominal surgery? There's not even a, a second that she's thought about. So um, I think some of this goes back to the severance of motherhood and children and women and female, Anyway, I think there's, I don't know how to unravel it without also unraveling some feminist gains, which I'm, which I don't want to do. So when it, when it comes to the law 
and language. And when we stopped calling women that carried babies mothers, do you know when that was in, in the US or in the UK? And, and do you think that has had any impact? That is a good question. Um, I, I would, ha I mean, I'm just guessing. I would think it, it's probably a pretty recent development. And, it's, and it came about in, in the space of assisted reproduction. And, you know, that we don't really need mothers anymore. And, you know, women are just, you know, ovens and incubators and, you know, like mm. chickens that provide eggs. Yeah. Well, I talked to Tony and she was saying that she didn't know that you put me in touch with her and she didn't know that she was committing a felony. And the felony, I think, was to do with the fact that it wasn't her, her egg. And I think that was the felony. And so obviously that was a really good law that was protecting women like Tony from from carrying babies that she then had no legal right to. Uh, and now that law has changed. So is it right across the US now that that these women who carry babies, who kind of aren't mothers, but they're, they're not, not mothers either, uh, is that right across the board now that the, the most important person in any surrogacy agreement are the people purchasing the baby? Well, in the U.S., it's, we unfortunately aren't like the United Kingdom where you have a law for your whole country. In the U.S., we have different laws in all 50 states. And so it really just varies on the state. So my state, California, the surrogate mother, um, she signs away her maternal rights before she's even pregnant. So she signs what's called a pre-birth order that basically says even before. So when you look at adoption, women are usually, they cannot sever their maternal rights until after the baby is born and whatever the, the waiting period might be, six weeks, four weeks, whatever. And then she can sever her, her maternal rights. In California, a surrogate mother isn't even pregnant and she signed a legal document saying, I have absolutely no legal rights to this child whatsoever. Um, and it varies from state to state. But if, if you look at how this, the states are moving in America, it's moving um, against the, the surrogate mother and privileging all the rights and benefits and protections to the, to the buyers. You know, they are owed, they are entering into a commercial contract for a child and you have no rights whatsoever. And I read these contracts and they make my blood boil. The things that these women are told contractually they, they can and cannot do. It's and really you heard frightening. It is somebody who, who was hired to do a job. But when it comes to, so I, I don't understand it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that if a woman's never had children, then there is a potential that she could think that somebody who has had children, who then carries babies for her, there is a potential, I think, for me to think that she doesn't really know how it feels to be pregnant. She doesn't know how it feels to have the kind of the little flutter of bubbles when you're first pregnant. And then that first kick and kind of you, this human becomes part of you. And if you lie on your side, you um, sort of say, oh, he or she or they sticking their little leg in me and oh, they like to do this. And you build this relationship with this life. So I, can, I, can, I can't forgive them, but I, I find it more palatable. But when you've got rich women who've already had a couple of babies and then they decide that they can't carry another, they know exactly what they're doing. And I find that so disturbing that they think there is enough money for a woman to go through that and have no baby at the end of it. Mm -hmm. How much do you think these women, are, how much do you think, these celebrities are paying are they paying huge sums or um i think they're probably paying the the, the top the you know the top of the the limit um and there actually isn't any legal limit but they're they're paying more my my theory is and i can't prove that who are pregnant for celebrities not know the pregnant for a celebrity so I've seen, for example, uh, ads where it specifically says you are being asked to carry a pregnancy, a baby for, um, you know, a, a famous, an important person, and you will be bound to more. And so I think that a lot of these women, I, I bet that Anderson Cooper's surrogate perhaps doesn't know that she gave birth to Anderson Cooper's baby. 
Right. And that, that name never in the contract that she, that she signed. But what I also don't like is that the industry, back to language, they program surrogates. They, are, they never say that they're pregnant. They're on a journey. Heavy use of this word journey. You're on a journey helping somebody to become a family. You're on a journey to build a family for somebody else. So they try to dis disassociate that woman from, you are not the mother. You're told early on, you're not the mother. You're not pregnant. You're not giving birth. You're on a journey. Very manipulative. It's very um, gaslighting. Um, and in the U.S., they overwhelmingly pick women who already have children. Um, and these are low-income women, so they're, they're more likely to be compliant because they need the money. And they're more likely not to want to keep the child because they can't afford another child, which is why they're having a child for money for somebody else. So it's all this sort of programming and, um, you know, what do they call it? When you're grooming, grooming yeah. of these women. Do you think it's different for for the entire experience is it a better experience if it's like familial kind of surrogacy if you're doing a favor for someone or do you think there is as much potential for harm oh i think it's it's equally harmful when you're helping a sister or a really good friend either whether you're because i've seen women give their eggs to their sister or to a friend so she could have a baby or be a surrogate for them. Um, there's quite a few um, surrogate mothers that I've interviewed and their stories are in a book. You know, I don't know if you know Spinifex Press, Renata Klein and Susan Hoffman have this great feminist, feminist publishing house and there's a book out, Broken Bonds, Surrogate Mothers Speak Out. And in that book, there's several stories of women who were surrogates for family members and they're just treated with such disdain. Um, you know, they go into it thinking they're going to be this one big happy modern family. You'll be the nice aunt that will come to the birthday parties. And, you know, it's kind of like two's company, three's a crowd. And I see oh, over and over again, once that baby comes, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, we thought it was all going to work out that we're going to be one big happy family. But, you know, this is just kind of cramping the style. And it's probably better if you just go away. Um, there's a woman in Kansas who was a surrogate for a family member. She's written a book telling her story of how it just blew up her family. Um, you know, one of the women in my film, Breeders, a subclass of women, was a surrogate for her her gay brother and his partner. And it, you know, went all the way through the courts. It's a nasty custody battle. So she gets the children every other week. Um, very contentious, um, not not a happy ending at all. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, because a lot of times it is sort of manipulative. I mean, we're really concerned in like the whole area of organ transplant, you know, again, back to my nursing background, you know, family members feel pressured um, to provide a kidney if there's a sick family member and they might be a match, you know, oh, you've had three kids, you feel guilty because my sister can't have any, that kind of, would you, would you mind? And you sort of feel sometimes pressured. Um, so I, yeah, I've just seen it. And, and I've seen it go bad too in situations where women, women weren't being paid. Because sometimes you just say, well, if women just aren't paid, the problem is the payment, right? It's just about the payment. But that's not true either because, you know, the baby doesn't know who was paid. Um, yeah. You know, the baby up in the situation, they're not sitting there going, well, if I had been born for free, everything would have been fine in my life. But, you know. I, I find it really difficult that so much of this has happened uh, kind of without anybody really mm -hmm. thinking about the actual issues. So not thinking about that baby and the bonds. Um, I'm not thinking about, you know, if you give your egg to your sister and then that actually is your kid, that's, you know, children mean something, right? Our bonds with our children, they, they mean something. And you can't just undo it because you want to be nice. So uh, how would we improve that? What, what would you do, Jennifer? Would you just flood everything with so much information people couldn't refuse to see it? Well, that's what we try to do. I mean, you know, we produce films telling women's stories of how they were harmed. Um, we produced a film called Anonymous Father's Day, which features all the, the donor can see people now grown up speaking out about, uh, you know, their objections to how they were, they were 
you know, put on this planet. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time, I've spoken at the United Nations, I travel and speak at legislative hearings. We were very involved in a recent campaign to try to stop the legalization of commercial surrogacy in New York State. Of course, we lost because there was such a heavy, wealthy gay lobby, you know, Andy, uh, Andy Cohen of Bravo TV, who's a gay man who has a child through surrogacy, is, you know, Governor Cuomo's best buddy. He was at all the, you know, the press briefings on family equality, you know, because now that we have same-sex marriage, you know, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby carriage. So gay men pushing hard, hard in the U.S. I oppose surrogacy full stop for anybody. Um, it's, you know, for me, I don't really care if you're a unicorn or, you know, you're a single person, whatever. Um, so it's sort of, you know, but it's hard because it's babies. People love babies and people want people to have babies. And when people can't have babies, we get all weak in the knee. Um, you know, we, ha we have to uh, fight against, you know, in the U.S., we have this distorted view of feminism. You know, it's my body, it's my right, it's my choice. I can therefore sell my eggs. I can rent out my womb. It's like, no, 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 no. So I'm, a, I'm an abolitionist in the sense of prostitution and pornography. Let's ban it all. Let's prohibit it all. Um, what, so what kind of regulation, you know, would, would help in these situations? You know, when surrogate mothers in America have died. You can't write a law that says, well, you won't die. It's a risk. It's risky, risky business. So if we go through then, so the, the risk of donating eggs is that you don't produce any and you'll never have children or, and you'll have lots of children born potentially or some that you will never meet, never have connections to, don't know where they are, don't know if you have them, I assume that you don't even know if you have those children, if you donate eggs. And yeah, they target young women? Mm-hmm. Yeah, young fertile women, um, you know, girls on university campus are the perfect, you know, target. They don't want to be surrogates. You don't want to be walking around pregnant on, and, you know, at school. But if you can get in and in about three, four weeks, you can make, you know, $15,000 selling a batch of your eggs. But there's serious short and long-term risk. I mean, the women that I've interviewed, um, two of them had massive strokes and they lost their own fertility. And this was just in, in a matter of, of days of donating their eggs and taking these fertility drugs. It's, you know, it's a surgical procedure. So it's very, very risky to their short-term health, um, you know, losing their own fertility. You know, here they were, you know, helping somebody have a baby. Now they'll never, ever be able to have their own children. Um, Longer-term risk, uh, cancers. You know, my colleagues and I have an article in one of your British medical journals on, you know, a case study of five otherwise healthy young women who were egg donors and within a few short years were diagnosed with breast cancers. With no, and, and, and do, egg donors are screened out. We don't want egg donors that have history of breast cancer. Um, people aren't buying egg donors that have, you know, any kind of health problems or health risks. So they, we do a lot of screening to make sure that these are perfectly healthy women. Um, and, you know, we've talked a bit, you and I, about the risk of surrogate. A surrogate pregnancy is not like a spontaneous natural pregnancy. This woman is pregnant with a foreign embryo, and her body immediately starts to reject this baby. And surrogates overwhelmingly carry twins and triplets. Um, so that also adds to this high risk. So then the, the woman and the babies are at risk. We saw these babies in, uh, you know, I did pediatric critical care nursing. So we saw all these IVF premature babies, multiple births, um, and, you know, just the train wreck of short and long-term um, health risks. So a surrogate, you know, one of the women I worked with, Kelly, she almost died. She had such severe preeclampsia um, that she almost was borderline stroke. So she had to undergo a, a, an emergency C-section. She was carrying twins for a couple in Spain. Now she will forever have those long-term risks of that high-risk pregnancy with preeclampsia. She's more at risk of a heart attack just because of the stress that preeclampsia puts on a pregnant woman. Gosh, so that's, yeah, I had to have anti-D injections because I'm rhesus negative. And so, you know, I mean, it happens that my only, so I'm rhesus negative A, so all my, my boys are all A, and then my only rhesus mm -hmm. negative is my daughter. <laughs> She's the only one that managed to carry that. So, um, poor girl so she's gonna have those scratchy horrible injections but nothing in comparison uh, obviously to what the the surrogates go through and then can we talk a little bit about the children born 
of surrogates, like whether or not they be donor conceived or um, uh, it's actually, let me just ask the eggs that get harvested, are they always in given to a surrogate or sometimes are they given to the woman who then becomes their, their in, intended parent? Um, do they sometimes have those eggs? Yeah, they're scattered far and wide. So it's, it's not uncommon for these egg donor women to be um, put on such high doses. So they'll produce 20, 40, 60 eggs in a batch. Well, there's not one person out there that wants 60 children. So these egg poachers broker them. So maybe, you know, one intended mother, you know, a dozen eggs for her to try to have her own baby. And then the rest gets sold out. Um, if you just Google World Egg Bank, there's egg banks out there that just have eggs. Well, where are these eggs coming from? They're, you know, overwhelmingly coming from egg donors. Um, so, you know, in, in one woman in the film Exploitation, when they super ovulated her, they got 60 eggs. So you know that those 60 eggs got probably scattered maybe five, six, seven, eight couples um, for them to try to, you know, do their own IVF. It's crazy. It is really crazy. And I want to go on to the more sinister aspect in, in a moment. But just to just to finish off talking about um, the, the children that you work with, the children that are created uh, via this practice, um, tell people about some of those because I don't think even though the whole thing is about someone becoming a special parent and the joy of this baby the baby seems to be the least discussed component of that whole thing it's like nobody thinks about the, the child and their connection so can you tell um, the, the people that watch this some of the things that that some of the people that you work with and what they what their experience was i mean their own words are and the obviously the ones that i work with are the people that have been told so they know there's there's hundreds of thousands of people walking out there that have never been told that their father was a sperm donor or their mother used a donor egg or something because we just lie so there's you know there's one woman in particular she talks about how she always knew she didn't fit in because she didn't look like anybody in the family but she saw pictures of her mom pregnant so she knew her she wasn't adopted you know she heard the stories of when i went into labor and i gave birth to you but it wasn't until her father got really 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 ill and she's a young mom she's to her mother and said i worry that i'm going to be sick like dad and her mother says we've never told you but your father is not your father he's we used a sperm donor so you don't have, and so her mother thought she was giving her good news. Like, you don't have to worry. You're not going to get sick like dad because you're not related to dad. You're not his genetic child. And it just, it just devastated her. Um, you know, they talk about the, the again, the, the sort of the grooming, how their parents will tell them we wanted, we were so desperate for you. We wanted you so badly. We did all this. We finally had to go to a egg donor or a surrogate or whatever. So this, this young person doesn't feel like they can question because they'll feel like, oh, you know, my parents might be angry at me because I want to say, but I want to find that person. I want to know who they are and I'd like to meet them. And so there's this huge sense of guilt. So a lot of them talk about how when their parents get old and their parents finally die or when their parents get demented or elderly and don't know, they will start their search because there's human connections are real and they don't feel that they they have them validated. So they have to tiptoe around and they don't want to make mommy and daddy sad or, or, or mad, um, but they'll think I don't really love them. I don't appreciate them. So there's all this, this kind of baggage around all that, which I think is really, really kind of unfortunate that mm. these children almost have to feel like they have to protect their parents. When in fact, parents, we know our job is always to protect our children, yeah. even as our children, you know, we're the, well, we're the adults in the room. I'm a lover of um, a program. I think you have it in the States as well, but I do like really, Judge Judy is, is my guilty pleasure, but another one is something called Long Lost Families. Now, these people have lost touch with a parent. Often it will come from like the 70s or the 60s when women weren't allowed to be single parents, and so they had to give them up. 
But these women had, when they meet each other, the women had the experience of the pregnancy, of growing that baby in her womb, of seeing that baby born, of holding that baby usually for about six weeks. And so um, would I, I'm going to say that I think that is a less complicated reunion and longing and need. So the woman that carries a baby and gives it up and so on and has that baby adopted, that woman has a relationship kind of with that baby. That is not like donating eggs. So that child, when, they, when a child finds an adopt, uh, their biological mother that wasn't an egg donor but had to give them up for adoption, there is maybe a connection and a longing from both sides but that can't be the same often with the egg donor because the egg donor has, uh, in her mind, must have just given up some eggs. They haven't given up babies. And so that must be more traumatic for the child than a child who's been adopted, if it's traumatic at all. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just a, a huge area where we need better study so we can understand the kind of trauma that we're creating in these people's lives. We're just really, we're making it up as we go. We're, you know, we're throwing spaghetti on the wall and see, see what stick, which I think is quite, quite sad. But I think the trauma is, is quite real and it's very powerful. And I said earlier, I think we're going to need a lot more people going into psychology and counseling to yeah. deal with these when they start to come to these you know, like you say, there'll, there'll be these monumental times. And even egg donors, once egg donors, because I'm in a chat group, a, a forum on a Facebook for egg donors, once they become mothers and they have their own biological children that they're raising, they start thinking about, oh my gosh, my eggs, my children, these are my children here in my house. That's their brothers and sisters out there. And will they start genetic DNA testing 23andMe and finding each other. So these sort of, you know, Mother's Day is, oh, surrogate mothers have huge trauma on Mother's Day or the birthday of the child that they gave and, you know, and sold and gave away. Um, you know, you'll, I, you know, hopefully you'll talk with Jessica Kern born of surrogacy. She found her surrogate birth mother um, and it didn't go well because that woman feels really guilty because she sold her child. I mean, Jessica's first baby picture is in the lawyer's office where the surrogate mother's being handed a check for $10,000 and Jessica's being passed you know, to strangers. And that's her very first baby picture. I mean, can you imagine that being your first baby picture? Um, it's on yeah. some cute little, you know, on the rug with your little naked butt in the air and your little angel wings on your back. It feels unresolvable though. It, I mean, aside from outright banning, it doesn't, it, it just paints a picture of, a, creating human life without humanity yeah i mean what's the what's the solution to those babies in kiev right now what's so, the solution? tell us tell people uh, uh, what that is yeah i mean basically right now there's about 50 children that were born through surrogate mothers in in, the, in ukraine and because of the coronavirus pandemic travel bans these babies have been born without the purchasing parents being able to travel and pick them up. So they're just lined up in these little, you know, nursery beds. Uh, they've turned a hotel room into a makeshift hospital. And there's no sense of when the travel ban will be lifted, when these parents will be able to come. They're already saying that there's a thousand more babies that are surrogate mothers in Ukraine are pregnant with right now that are going to be giving birth over the next weeks and months with the travel ban. We have no idea when that will be lifted. So we'll, we'll have, you know, maybe another thousand babies that'll just be lined up in a, in a room being cared for by nurses. Um, and you, like you say, where's the humanity in that? It's like institutional, um, you know, when, when I think back to the early days and the horrors of like the, the orphanages in Russia, where you just saw these babies not being cared for, they had bottles tied to the crib so the babies could just sort of feed themselves and not being held and not being, you know, sung to and caressed and not being nursed. It's, it's institutional. We wouldn't even treat farm animals that way. We, when we think about no. the PETA outrage of how, how close pigs are kept together and, you know, how their animals are treated, you kind of go, we're doing that to human babies right now. Yeah. And all the horror, the horror is around these poor parents who can't travel in and get their purchased product. You know, nobody's saying, 
what is the right thing to do to, for these babies? Well, I just assumed, to be honest, when I first saw it, I just thought, why haven't they stayed with the women that gave birth to them? But it's the Ukraine. So I would yeah. imagine that there's probably, it's probably not even good, as good conditions as there are for surrogates in the US. Um, yeah. And that's so, why the market is there. It's because it's poor women. It's poor women who need the money and we can, we can exploit it. But yeah, the most humane thing would be for those babies to be in the arms of their birth mother, whose breasts are full of milk, ready to feed that baby. You know, your breasts don't turn off and stop making milk and say, oh no, this is, we're just on a journey here. We're not making, we're not pregnant. <laughs> I feel so blessed to give a baby to this rich couple. Um, yeah. So you mentioned 60 eggs. And what struck me when you said about 60 eggs and you talked about egg banks and you talked about distribution and we know that lots of money changes hands. Um, and I'm going to feel terrible about even saying this. But are those eggs and those babies being purchased for things other than a couple that want a child? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of them go go to research um so this is the, the irony is in california we passed a law last year that allows women to be paid to sell their eggs for research purposes it's funny because it's called it was called the Re women's reproductive health act so i'm like great we're going to pay women to risk their reproductive health so we can study women's reproductive health so a lot of eggs, which is why we have these world egg banks, you know, we get eggs and some go to making babies and others go to research purposes. So, I mean, fertility medicine was built on, you know, research. And so, you know, the best way to research is to have eggs and sperm and you're making embryos in the lab. I mean, Louise Brown wasn't like miraculously born after one trial. There was just a lot of trial and error, a lot of attempts in the laboratory that required eggs and sperm, you know, to try to figure out how we can make, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Brown a baby. Um, so, so yeah, so women can sell their eggs just for research or they can just sell them and to a clinic and then the clinic can do what they want with them after they're in their hands. Right. And I read that there were something like a, 150 single men in China that had got surrogates. And I'm... Oh, I'm there's, there's all kinds of creepy stories like that out there. And you think, you know, you know that there's, there's baby rings, there's pornography rings, you know, child pedophilia stuff. I mean, just all that nasty, nasty stuff. It just, it's just so, it's just unfathomable when, when your mind takes you there, that there's kind of no end of the exploitation. And there's no point at which that women and children aren't being exploited in this practice. And yet Louise will be held up as, I think they celebrated, she was maybe 30 or 40 recently. I think she must be 30 because no. it was in, I remember it in my lifetime being all over the news. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and it, it's, it's a road to hell. Yeah, and you know, you guys have your hands full with your your laws in the United Kingdom around this. It's an altruistic model, which is just a joke. Because um, still, surrogate mothers are paid. You know, especially when you're a low-income woman, if you can still make thirteen, fifteen thousand pounds, you know, that's not something that women, you know, turn their nose at. Um, now that you know, could be a year's salary for some. Yeah. yeah. And you know, in the US, it's low income women and they feel, feel like, well, I can still keep my day job. You know, Kelly Martinez is a surrogate I work closely with and she cleans houses and, you know, works in a fast food restaurant and she's being paid to be pregnant. So she's, you know, got three incomes coming, you know, so it, you know, makes, makes, helps her put food on the table. Um, and it's, and I, and, you know, again, back to the fact that I spent such a long time of my career working in hospitals and nursing, I have such disdain for fertility doctors who are just making this fistful of, of dollars, um, you know, preying on women's vulnerable, you know, need for money. Uh, it's not, well, not Tony brought up something very interesting and I, uh, I have a bit of a thing about it 
certain aspect of politics at the moment, you know, the virtue signaling kind, especially when it comes to race in the United States, because it's very easy to point out racism. It's a lot more difficult to actually deal with racism and find out the causes of racism and to stop it from, from the root rather than just point and, and call everything racist. But the fact that black women, for whatever reason, I don't know what the reason is, I don't think there's good enough research to say whether or not it's genetic, whether it's poverty, whether it's a little bit of both, whether it's doctors, or whatever it is. But we do know that black women, both in this country and America, are far more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts. And we know that poor black women in New York are far more likely to be vulnerable to the um, pandemic sort of job losses. And now they've just opened it up to advertise that you can become a surrogate. And I just think if you can't tie up those bits of information that basically talk about exploitation on one hand, and we know that the people will be talking about how wonderful this new law is about surrogacy and how it enables everybody, all families to, to be parents. Um, I just really would like people to start joining, joining those dots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, we, we tried to make that very strong case when we were fighting in New York State, for example, because, you know, the US already has appalling data on um, maternal health. You know, we still have way too many women dying of pregnancy. We have way too many women with you know, secondary um, diseases, you know, not being healthy during their pregnancy, you know, and in New York, the rates are, are horrible. So here's a state that already has horrible statistics on maternal health uh, as it relates to women and pregnancy. And we know that women of color are even higher. They're more at risk of you know, not having healthy pregnancies for a, for a variety of reasons. So you're just doubling down on and adding risk. So you're taking people that are cash strapped, that are going to have this slick marketing. You're an angel. You're doing this wonderfully good thing. We have all your best interests at heart. You don't worry. You'll be fine. Um, and it's it's just um, scandalous that that they legalized commercial surrogacy in New York State. You know, I just sometimes I just want to like bang my head on the wall and think, you know, how do we connect those dots? Um, but you know, I'm again, I'm going to sound like I'm just gay bashing here, but you know, the, the Trump card was wealthy gay men um, want children. And the only way they can have children the way they want them, because they can adopt, you know, US, you can adopt children as, you know, gay men, um, is by buying eggs and renting looms. Is surrogacy sometimes a factor? So is the... So I, I had a conversation with a, a friend this afternoon and I was just saying, I don't know how I'd feel if the four children I had were genetically my husband's, but not mine. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wonder if, if there's any statistics in whether or not that is a factor into you know, people's divorces. So actually bringing this child in to complete your family actually often breaks up your family. Yeah, we again because this is new technology. This is a new way of creating, you know, human beings. So there's not data out there. The industry has no incentive to do any kind of studies and track this because they'll, they'll find out what we all kind of suspect that this is dangerous and risky. But we do see it in um, in domestic violence. We know that children are more at risk being in a home where one of the parents isn't genetically related. You know, mom's yeah. boyfriend, mom's boyfriend is in the home. You know, those children are more at risk. Um, I met many children, people, adults now that were, you know, through sperm donation and they, their fathers just never connected to them. You're like, you're, you're really not my kid. You know, one woman, you know, when her parents divorced, her father didn't want any kind of custody. Like, you know, and even though she, you know, lived in his house and was, you know, his, he was her mm -hmm. father for many years when the parents split up. He's like, you're not my kid. Um, so. But we know this, right? Before we... I mean, instinctively, I, I just think we've gone wrong as humans because we're chasing mm -hmm. stuff that instinctively we know it's not right. Otherwise, the surrogacy industry knows it's not right. Otherwise, it would examine itself to check mm -hmm. that it's okay. But it doesn't bother doing that because it knows 
is wrong. And yeah. we, if we think about it really, um, and I've had, I'm very lucky. I, I absolutely, I'm besotted with my husband and, and him me. Although I'm about to go through the menopause, so maybe that'll change. Um, <laughs> but, I, so I'm really lucky, but I, I just think every child has the right, whether you're gay, straight, bisexual, or a unicorn, to know their mum and their dad. Oh. And when we started to get away with, when we started saying stupid things, like men are as good at being mothers as mothers, yeah. I think that that kind of paved the way for where we are. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely spot on. And, and like I say, it will be the, the children as they grow up and they raise their voices and speak out and say, no, 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 you can't just erase away, wish away, you know, ma manufacture stuff up. I am connected to these people. I'm curious about them. Um, you know, you don't walk in after you've had your baby, they don't just take you into the little nursery where all the little newborn babies are and just say, pick one. <laughs> you go, no, I want, I want mine. I just don't want a baby. I want mine. Mm. You know, but in, but in this area of third party conception, we go, it doesn't really matter. You know, just, you know, you get as long as you baby. love it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the baby, the baby minds, the baby minds and the baby knows it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I right. wish you all the luck in the world. What I will do is I will include in the description all of your contact details, all of your film references, so that people can really find out that actually surrogacy is not everybody has a right to have a newborn baby. And it's, it's not a victimless industry. Uh, so on behalf of all the women and the girls and some dads who are going to hopefully benefit from your experience in the United Kingdom, uh, we wish you the very best of luck and thank you very much for coming on and talking to me. Thank you. My pleasure. Please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. For ways to support me, please look in the description below.